0: Welcome to Breakthrough Radio, a global business radio show where smarter strategies deliver breakthrough results by adding an entrepreneurial touch, driving today's profits. Now, get ready for three powerful breakthrough segments with Michelle Price.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are tuning in to Breakthrough Radio from. This is Michelle Price here, where we're coming to you from the third coast of Houston, Texas today. And on Breakthrough Radio, we're celebrating 10 years of talking about mastering the internal and external strategies for business. Well, you know, it's the first Monday of the month, and that means at the top of each episode, we get to hear a breakthrough tip. It's a short tip at the top of the show where you can take action on that information right now. Our featured spot today is with Morton Henson, a New York bestselling author of Great at Work. Our featured interview is a 30-minute conversation that's a nice deep dive into the topic of the day to allow you to gain a much better understanding, level of knowledge, and application for your business. Then we wrap up this Monday with our Breakthrough Bite with Jeff Shuey, who focuses on the intersection between people and technology. You know, our Breakthrough Bite is a nice 10-minute segment that's not as long as our tip and, and not, uh, you know, a different time of our feature because we love meeting the learning styles of all of our listeners. So I want to thank you for coming to listen to Breakthrough Radio today. And if it's your first visit, please make sure you thank the person. Who told you about us? Here's the scoop. You're going to want to listen without distraction. That's why you only need to write down one URL today. It's www.TheBreakthroughRadio.com to a blog post that gives you the frame for the conversation for each episode. And that means that any or everything that we talk about today, something we may reference to as a resource, we link to it there. Whether it's how to reach Morton, Jeff, or myself, make sure you do visit and connect with each one of us. Do more than follow. Reach out. Truly connect. Ask us a question. Engage us in conversation. And of course, when it makes sense for your business, hire us. Well, here is our breakthrough tip with Don
0: Cooper on buying signals. Good morning, Michelle. There are lots and lots of buying signals. And throughout the sales process, you might get dozens of signals from any given prospect. There are nonverbal signals, things like smiling, nodding, when people relax their shoulders, touching the product, if it's a couple or a group, looking at each other significantly, asking questions like, what colors does it come in? Do you deliver? Tell me about the warranty. What's the best? you can give me. Making positive comments about your company, the product, the service. Asking about available options. Asking about financing when they share personal information. Asking about installation or maintenance. Or objections. Objections are buying signals. Because the prospects wouldn't bother to object if they weren't interested. All of these are buying signals. All these are good. However, Not all buying signals are equal. There are three different types of buying signals. And just as there are three different colors of traffic signals, there are three different colors of buying signals. Green, yellow, and red. A green signal means, let's keep going. I need more information. A yellow signal means, slow down. Let's discuss this for a while, and then we'll decide whether we keep going or we stop. And the red signal means, stop, that's it, we're done, take my money. And the key is to be able to differentiate one type of signal from the other. As a general rule, green signals tend to be about the product or service itself, they indicate that the buyer is in an information gathering mode. They haven't made their decision yet. They're still looking for information to help them make that decision. So questions about the product or service, questions about color, about options, about service, tend to be green signals. Yellow signals tend to be questions that involve more discussion. They tend to be about either the buying process or ownership. Questions about the warranty or guarantees. Questions about financing. Those types of questions typically require a little more discussion. They're bigger issues and they usually indicate that the buyer is probably going to buy this product. The question is will they buy it from you and will they buy it now? Then a red signal is any indication that the buyer has made up their mind. They want this product or service, they want it from you, and they want it now. So when they're nodding, that's a great signal. It may not be red though. They can nod early on in the process. If you finish discussing a yellow signal issue, something about the financing, and they're nodding with a satisfied look on their face, that then may be a red signal. Red signals are often missed because they're not really obvious. In fact, the most common red signal is silence. And most salespeople and business owners completely miss this signal because we're too busy talking. We fear silence. That silence, though, is an indicator that they've made up their mind. When the prospect doesn't ask anything else, doesn't say anything else, it means they're done. They're ready to buy. What happens all too often is salespeople will make one of two mistakes. Either they'll get a green signal and stop, they'll try to close right then and there, and they get rejected. Because even though they got a buying signal, it wasn't a red signal, it was green the prospect was saying that they need more information and want to keep going. The other mistake that's frequently made is the salesperson will get a red signal and keep on going. And they can very often talk themselves right out of the sale. So as you and your prospect are talking, pay very close attention to what they're communicating, both verbally and non-verbally, in terms of their buying signals. As you notice those signals, ask yourself, what kind of signal is this? Is it a green signal, should we keep going? Is it yellow, do we need to slow down and then decide? Or is this red, are we done? The more you practice this, the better at it you'll get. And when you can quickly differentiate which type of signal is which, you'll know precisely when to close. That will boost your sales.
1: Thank you, Don. You know, today's interview came about because the entire team here on Breakthrough Radio consistently looks for people who will hold meaningful conversations that will contribute to your being able to master that internal and external strategies for business. And so when I saw the body of work of our next guest has been producing, I knew we had a winner for you. Morton Henson is a management professor at the University of California, Berkeley. He is a co-author with Jim Collins of the New York Times bestselling Great by Choice and the author of the highly acclaimed Collaboration. Formerly a professor of Harvard Business School where he was a Fulbright Scholar, his academic research has won several prestigious awards and he is ranked one of the world's most influential management thinkers by Thinkers 50. Morton Henson, also a manager at the Boston Consulting Group where he advised corporate clients worldwide. Born and raised in Norway, he lives in San Francisco with his wife and two daughters, and he travels the world to give keynotes and to help companies and people become great at work. So join me as we welcome Morton Hansen to Breakthrough Radio. How are you doing today, Morton?
2: I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, and good morning.
1: Thank you. You know, since we talk about how to master both the inner and outer game of business, I'd be curious to ask you, is there really an inner game we need to be aware of in today's business world? Or has it changed in the past two to three years and become obsolete?
2: Well, I think we're living in a world of 24-7, meaning we are always uh, on. We're expected to be always on. I think that has changed. I think in many jobs, uh, the requirements have changed. they become more uh, difficult, perhaps. And so we need to change with that. And and what we found in our study, so we studied 5,000 people, managers and employees across corporate America, and we tried to answer a fundamental question, which is why do some people perform better than others? And what you're seeing is that the top performers, they they change uh, how they work, how they approach work, uh, in line with some of these uh, new expectations, and, and therefore they do better.
1: Well, you know, this morning I saw a post, Morton, with advice from Mark Cuban on how following your passion is bad advice, and he suggested to focus on where you put your time and your effort. Now, I've got to tell you, as a lifelong entrepreneur, I get it. Mark's showing how important it is to apply yourself to produce better mm-hmm. results. But I think, Morton, that you've got a key that many miss on this conversation. Will you share with our listeners what their focus really needs to be on before they tap into their passion and apply effort.
2: Yeah, so it's it's a really a few things, but uh, I'm glad you saw that poster, and it's a bit in line with what we found because we studied the role of passion in performance. And, you know, uh, there is that dictum out there that you should follow your passion. and And what that really means is to... Do what you love and, and choose your profession and your jobs and activities on that basis regardless of other considerations. Now, what is missing there is looking at people who followed their passion and failed and became unemployed and unhappy. You know, those people are also out there, we found, not just the ones who get asked up on a podium at a commencement speech, the super successful who say, you know, I follow my passion and look how, where it got me. So we need a little more balanced view. What we found is that something that is more important than passion, and that is purpose. The purpose is do what contributes. Where can you make unique contributions? Where can you create value in your job, and how can you do that better? It's actually the opposite of passion. Passion is about what the world can give you, what excites you, whereas purpose is about what contributions you can make and 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 the value you can bring to others what you can give the world it's very different and i try to tell my graduates here at uc berkeley when they graduate you know you should focus on purpose what is the contributions you can make and that is playing into your strength and your effort and that's more important than passion now of course having both is great and you want to have both but we shouldn't forget that kind of um, purpose part. And, of course, that brings up the question, what should you focus on? And, and, and so we looked at that, too, in our study. And here's a thing that quite surprised me, and that is the top performers in most professional jobs across corporate America, they do less than obsess. They are hyper-focused on a few key activities and they're very good at staying focused on those and saying no to other things. And then they obsess, in other words, they go all in on those few activities. And so they make the most of the few things that they focus on. And that is actually a bit contrarian in today's world because, in today's hectic uh, workplace, we're asked to do more. More projects, more assignments, more meetings, more committees, more customer calls, more business trips, more and more, you know, is supposed to be the the road to success. But it isn't. It is actually the opposite. The top performers, they're able to do very few things and do them really exceptionally well.
1: Well, if I can, I'd like to kind of break that up into two additional questions, what I've discovered, Martin, is knowing your purpose seems to elude so many, <laughs> especially um, if you are focused on that, you understand and recognize your own, and you want to learn that in others, a lot of times people can't even answer that question. So before we talk about whether we work more and do less or do less, how can people really uncover? what their purpose is without it taking their entire life to figure it out.
2: Right, yeah, and I think we have a bit of, that's a great question, I think we have a bit of a misconception of what purpose really is. Most people think of it as kind of a, a, something noble, like working to alleviate poverty in the streets of Chicago or something like that. And that is part of a purpose, but purpose is so much more and it's more fundamental. So I sort of have this kind of the thing, I, we discovered this thing we call purpose pyramid, which is really, at the very fundamental level, kind of the first part of the pyramid is, is that idea, where, what value do you contribute in your job? And value is defined at the benefits you bring to others. So, I'll give an example, one of the people uh, we interviewed in our study was a concierge in a hotel in Quebec in Canada. Now, concierge doesn't sound like a very uh, interesting job to most people, and you don't think of it as a job with purpose, but this person, Genevieve, really felt her job had purpose, and the purpose was to help the guests that come to Quebec stay at their hotel, have a good vacation. In other words, contributing, helping contribute to a really good experience coming on that vacation to Quebec in Canada. Now... It's important that she felt strongly about it, not what what I think there is a, a strong purpose there. But if we think of purpose as being do what contributes to others and helping others, regardless of job, then we get a much better way of thinking about purpose because then many jobs, many jobs then have a lot of purpose in them as opposed to just thinking about, okay, how do I kind of help the world? And she felt she had a very strong purpose, in doing just that. And we felt many people in different kinds of jobs, even kind of mundane jobs, that said, I feel this job has purpose because I'm helping others in some respect. And that goes for internal, uh, people internally in big companies too. If I'm sitting in human resources, I have, I don't have, I don't deal with customers on the outside, but I have internal customers. I'm helping other businesses, other leaders and managers in the company do their job better. And that's, the way I contribute. So if we can redefine purpose a bit, then it's much easier to think, all right, how can my job have purpose? And and when you go down that path and you think about how do I, can I help others and contribute to others, uh, it's easier to define it.
1: I love how you make that so much easier to grasp uh, because it's definitely something that when I was able to tap into that. I could really experience and feel the difference in how that me to align myself in what I choose to do and where I choose to put my attention. Um, It's almost like it exponentially just kind of uh, accelerates what you accomplish when you have all those things in alignment. So thank you for that wonderful Mm. explanation.
2: Yeah, and, 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 and when you take that kind of view of purpose, then you say, okay, so how can I contribute more or different or better? And then you start thinking about my job. And then we sort of get to other principle of the book, uh, which I call uh, Redesign Work for Value. Because how can I then contribute more value to others in my job? And when you start ta- thinking about that, you might start questioning some of the things you do that it may contribute uh, little value or are too narrowly defined. And you start changing that. And that brings up the question, you know, how do we produce more value in our jobs, uh, f- create more value for, for people that are the beneficiary of, of your output, of your work? And I, what we found was actually striking. So many people are actually not producing that much value in their job. And one of the culprits is that they're just following traditional job specifications, how work has been done for decades, and, and the wrong metrics in many ways. Um, and give an example of the latter, the, the, the wrong metrics. So, we found this person who is uh, running a warehouse and a logistics function in the warehouse, and they're shipping out industrial products to other corporate customers. And he was tracking his performance on one metric, which was the number of shipments that leave his warehouse on time, which makes a lot of sense, right? Are you actually shipping out these products when they should be shipped out from your warehouse? And he hit a 99% mark on that, on that metric. So he was doing really well and got a very glowing job performance review. But then they surveyed their customers. And the customer says only 65% of the shipments get here when we need them. In other words, on that metric, which was value to the customers, are we getting the industrial products when we need them for our purposes? They were actually 35% of the time late. So here you have an internal metric, shipments leaving the warehouse, which is internally focused on what we think is important when it goes out of our warehouse, but not when the customer needs it, when they think it is important. And that's a value shift. That's a value metric. Uh, I'm contributing to the customers getting the stuff when they need it. And it's a subtle shift, but it's really important because you can see if you shift that to saying, okay, the one key thing that matters in my job is to get it when the customer needs it then I will change how I work. I will reorganize my schedule. And so much of work today is kind of like that internal focus on on the wrong kinds of metrics.
1: Well, now you've brought something up that's making me ask another question I hadn't even thought of yet, and that is, what is a good way for us to, or what are good questions we can ask ourselves to help us recognize when we're focused on the wrong metrics. What if we don't have someone who's doing surveys or asking questionnaires? What if we're a smaller business?
2: Right. I mean, so, yeah, it, it, this goes for small business. It goes for large business. It goes for entrepreneurs and single-person businesses. It goes everywhere. I, 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 the way I like to think about this is you ask yourself a series of questions. So you, you ask, first question is, what is the value that I contribute to others, my customers and, and, and other stakeholders? And you have to sit down and really care for, say, okay, what is it that they value that I do? And that's, it, it sounds like an easy question to answer. Actually, it isn't, because you need to be a little precise. What exactly am I producing uh, that is helping them do their job better? And once you put that on a piece of paper, then you ask yourself, okay, how can I measure how can I potentially measure whether I'm actually producing that value? Right? And then you, you do a, a, a third question, which is, well, my current metrics with the way I think of myself as successful, am I actually, is that compatible? Is that similar to what I f- think of those value metrics uh, should, be, should be? So um, many times you have businesses, uh, they think of sales as a metric of success. But you can think of there are two – not every dollar sold is the same. You have high-quality dollar sales, which are really dollars sold to a customer uh, or your client that is uh, something that produces enormous value for them, something they need, something that helps them do whatever they do much better. That's a high-quality dollar. And then you have a low-quality dollar that you were able to sell something, a box or whatever it is that you're selling. And it's not – they bought it, but it's not really producing much value for them. Uh, it's kind of low-quality low value. I mean, one analogy here, we, we all been to a retail store, a clothing store, Nordstrom, Macy's, wherever, and we bought some shoes or some shirts, and some of them we love and we use them all the time, and then we have some shoes in the closet that somebody sold us to us, and we didn't perhaps like it, but we were kind of forced upon us perhaps, and they're sitting in the closet, and we never used them. <laughs> That's a low-quality dollar sale. So this is the way you think about value. You know, am I produce, producing that tremendous value uh, to customers? And if you think like this, it's an outside in view. Put myself in the shoes of my customers, or internal or external. What is it that they value in what I do? So you've got to take somebody else's point of view, which is the beneficiaries of your work. And that's a good exercise to do to kind of try to unlock what you do.
1: You know, I find it interesting that those of us who've been in the marketing space and user experience was a huge piece of what we have to create around that additional areas of the business space are really starting to recognize how important that piece is and how they've missed it for so many years. So I want to go back to that second part of the question from when we started this where you talked about purpose, but you also talked about working smarter and not harder. So we've heard to work smarter and not harder for so many years that I think people have really kind of become immune to embracing that message. How can we help people recognize when they become numb to something that's important for them to be able to accomplish what they want? You know, there's a lot of dissatisfaction for people right now in, in doing their work. And it seems to me like it's all these incremental things that line up to either us being totally missed in alignment with it or we're totally in alignment, and, but a lot of times people really miss it.
2: Yeah, and I think um, this uh, work smarter not harder has become, the, it's become a cliché, almost like an empty slogan, and so what I wanted to do was take that on and say, okay, let's fill that slogan with real practical evidence-based advice. And that's what we have done in our research. As I said, we uh, analyzed the job of uh, 5,000 individuals and to figure out who performed better and why. And, and the answer is, you know, they work smarter, not harder. And we filled that, that slogan with seven key practices that constitute working smarter. Now, The working harder paradigm is uh, really prevalent, it's out there, and many people follow it. In other words, they believe that if they put in more hours, if they put in more effort in the week and over weeks, they will succeed more. Now, we analysed that because it could be true, right? And what we found is that if you're working about 30 hours a week on average in a full-time job, yes, it pays to put in more hours, go from 30 to 50 actually, to 50 hours. So that's, a, that's, that's quite a few hours, um, and that pays, because then you're getting really much better performance. But then from 50 hours on average per week to 65, we're seeing it flattens out a lot. So if, you, if you're at 50 hours and you say, I'm just gonna put in more hours to become a better performer, and you go to 65 on average, which is a lot of hours in a week, you're actually not getting a lot of bang for the buck there. And beyond 65 hours, those are working super long hours, they're actually seeing their quality and performance going down. They're making more errors in their work. So what that suggests to me, the, the guideline I give people is, you know, think about working hard, 50 hours a week. That's hard. That's hard work. But the idea that you can work even harder to be an even better performer, that's wrong. That's a myth. It's really not true. So do 50 hours, and then the question becomes, I mean, 50 more or less is the, is the idea. How are you spending those hours? What are you doing in those hours? is what matters. And that's what these seven key work smart practices come into play. And we talked about one of them, you know, do less than obsess and so on. So it's working differently. It's not just working more that really counts.
1: Yeah, I also like the focus on the word obsess. I think too many people they they intently focus a lot of emotional energy on things instead of asking themselves okay why am i feeling this and how is feeling this getting me what i want getting the result i want i think a lot of times it's the lack of asking ourselves some really good questions so that we can make better choices
2: yeah no i I agree with you on that and uh we and people are um you know, it's interesting around that obsessing thing. Um, of course, you don't want to take that too far, and 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 what you really want to obsess over is the quality of your work. You know, am I am I able to sit down and really do high-level quality work? Uh, you know, a great uh, PowerPoint presentation, a better sales pitch, a better uh, meeting performance. Whatever whatever I'm doing, uh, it's it's that quality that matters. And of course that is very difficult to do when you're bombarded with distractions and other task assignments and you have to run around like crazy from meeting to meeting. It's impossible. Yeah. To get that space, yeah, right? So you got you got that's why you can't <laughs> do too many things. You know you you, you got to do mediocre quality work. There's no way around it. Yeah. That's why we need to peer back. We right? don't... I Yeah.
1: Well, I took your quiz this morning and I have a couple of mm-hmm. questions around the questions that you asked um one of them was i relentlessly pursue my objective no matter Mm -hmm. the obstacles i face now the Mm -hmm. high achiever in me goes oh yeah but then the 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 pragmatic entrepreneur that i've learned over years of wisdom does well well, sometimes those obstacles are messages you're going in the wrong direction
2: i absolutely agree i i know it's a in the fuller service, a little more nuanced, but it, I call these people who are really good at this, I call them forceful champions is one of the chapters, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, with, with the first question you ask, uh, you know, you reference from the survey is really about grit, having resilience. You keep going undeterred, and you face an obstacle, you just don't stand down. But as we know, you're going to be smart about it. And I call that smart grit. First of all, you've got to sort of say, okay, is there a way I can circumvent it in a smart way? Can I make that person, can I compromise perhaps? Or can I make that person an ally and not an enemy of what I'm trying to do or a naysayer? And then there are obstacles that I would say, you know, you're right. Maybe that's a message. Maybe it's the message is they don't want to buy my product because they don't need my product and my product isn't good enough. As opposed to saying, you know, I'm just going to go harder and harder and sell harder and harder, something that is just mediocre you got to, that's a message, absolutely. But that's why I call it smart grit. we are got to have grit. we we got to, you know, and entrepreneurs and small business owners are great at this. They don't give up. They're really, they're really out there. But it needs to be smart. In other words, we need to circumvent and think about the messages we're getting from others. And again, one of the great things here is to be able to stand in someone else's shoes, like a customer, a competitor, somebody who's blocking you, and saying, okay, if I stand in their shoes... Uh, do they actually have a point they need to take into consideration? I'm mean, giving a concrete example from, from the book. There was a, a guy in Dow Chemicals, a large company. He wanted to create a new online business in his department. And he came up with a pricing scheme for online uh, purchase, sales of these kind of chemical uh, products. And his superiors didn't like it at all and they voted him down. So that was a message. Oh, boy, they they didn't like me. And and he thought sort of at the beginning, oh, they're just old school. They don't like new Internet stuff and so on. But then he sort of started thinking about it. Wait a minute. They might have a point. If I stand in their shoes and I look at the prices I'm putting up online, they are cheaper than what we're offering offline. And that's create a problem in our business. That can't be. So I can see their point of view now. And my online internet business is not going to work if we have cheaper prices online than we give to our customers offline. So he went back and started then modifying his pricing schemes and was able to take their input and come up with a different solution that they eventually agreed upon and it became a big success. But if he had not thought about what is their point of view, he would have missed the whole thing. And then he was able to see the point of view that he hadn't previously and it made all the difference.
1: Well, you brought up some points that I'd like to dig into for just a second here before we get to our last question. And where I see it really show up is when you've got um, people working together that have different times in the industry or in their business and different levels of experience. And, 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 oh, gosh, I'm trying to figure out how to say this without – getting everybody all triggered, but I can't figure it out, so I'm just going to say it the only way I know how. Too many times we tend to focus on the age of who's bringing things up. And so there's either ageism that happens in the conversation um, or there's um, diminishing comments made toward the younger person who's 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 trying to work in this space and I'm just wondering can we learn to ask better questions when those types of conversations start surfacing because there's some validity to each side of that piece but it doesn't usually take us in the direction we want to go
2: no, it doesn't. And, uh, I have this one chapter in the book as one part of the findings, um, and I call the principle Fight and Unite. Having a good fight in meetings. A meeting should be about having a great discussion and using the collective wisdom and expertise in the room to come up with the best decision and the best ideas. And the problem is that when we go into the meetings, there are all kinds of biases. There are all kinds, as you say, ageism or whatever it is inside of that room. So you're not getting the best decisions because you're not getting the collective wisdom out. And we need to have better fights in meetings. And I mean by that, I mean good fights, good discussions, rigorous discussions. And depending on the situation, so I'll give an example uh, when it comes to age. Uh, This company, uh, they tended not to listen to the junior people. New employees come in, and there's some people sitting there for 10, 15 years, and they started talking, and then by the time the meeting was over, the junior person hadn't said anything. And they kind of reversed it. So they said, let's start with an open-ended question and then started getting the junior people to come up with their ideas first. So they actually were able to get a voice in the beginning of the conversation. I mean, that's a great technique. And it can go the other way around. Maybe you have a different kind of setting where older people don't really get their voices heard because there is ageism in the other direction. And then you might start in that direction right let them speak first and let them kind of start out so you don't have the the dominant voice the dominant people in a room just are kind of running the show and no one else gets in and that can be true for other kinds it could be for international people it could be for women it could be for whatever but there's one thing we know from research having diversity of opinion and perspectives in the room when you're discussing things is really important having a homogeneous group of five or ten people who are they look the same, they're the same age, they have the same information, they think same same ways, they go to the same kind of you know, uh, country club, they've gone to the same schools in the, in the past, they're all the same. It doesn't provide the diversity of experience and perspectives that we need to be more creative and to be more innovative uh, when we come up with solutions and ideas.
1: Love that. That's oh. Thank you so much for for giving everybody that great tip that they can go put into action right now. So there's a question, more that we love to ask our guests who come on Breakthrough Radio. And it's just an opportunity for listeners to learn a little bit more about you personally, not necessarily your area of expertise. And we ended up naming it quite a few years ago, our brain download question because it kind of was birthed out of watching Star Trek and, and observing what happens with Spock and his whole mind meld thing. And basically what we do is we ask, if you have the opportunity to be able to understand how someone makes their choices and their decisions, not necessarily grasping their entire um mind on how they deal with everything in life but just their choices and their decisions and if you could extract that from anybody whether it's someone who's lived in the past someone who's living in the present or maybe someone who's going to be living in the future who would you want to have that brain download from and why
2: oh boy that's such a great question <laughs> um i i Uh, think that um, I'm going to pick a person from the future and I'm going to think about 30 years from now. I think um, I would like to know a teenager living in America 30 years from now. What is their how are they now uh, thinking? How are they uh, feeling? Because I think so much is going to change over the next 20 to 30 years that it's going to be so, so different from what we're doing now. And I think um, if you could understand that, uh, I think you know, if I was able to travel in a time machine to do that, I think it could be so much helpful to, pe- help, helpful to people think about what to do the next several years. So I'm going to go with a teenager 30 years from now. Um, don't even know what her name her name or his name would be. Uh, probably a different name. Uh, but uh, that's what I would do.
1: Oh, that's a fascinating perspective. Thank you for for going out on the limb layer and giving us a really different answer. <laughs> I love it. Well, I, you know, it's it's been fabulous being able to kind of have a mind's eye into what has gone into putting together Great at Work. And is there something you'd like to leave listeners with today beyond the obvious fact we'd like them to go buy a copy of it and, and read it as well as put it to work? What ha, What is something that you think that maybe you forgot to put in the book that you'd like to say, make sure you do this or think of this or ask this question?
2: Yeah, just as a kind of a final tip, I think right now we are so concerned with the future of work because we think that robots and other automation is going to take them away. And I think the if you think about your own work and your own business and how you lead your life, I think... Uh, think less about that and think more about how can you become better at what you do. I mean, how can you become truly great at work in what your profession and what you do? Because if, if you can do that, then it's a great antidote to the march of the machines. And there's so much more we can do without the machines, and we can be so much better. I didn't put that in the book, but I think that's one of the implications of, of this book, is that we, we, we must think more about how can we do our job better and not just thinking about what are the robots going to do. I think that's the difference. Um, and, and that leads everybody, uh, all of us, including myself, to the question, okay, of the seven key practices in the book, which, where should I start? Right? I can't do everything in, in, in and go, I'm busy, we're all busy. So what I suggest is what you did. You know, go to my website, do the quiz, and figure out uh, you know, which of the seven I should start doing, and then start working on it. And what we found, too, is that like small changes can have big results, just you know, start tomorrow. You don't have to change your life from one thing to a completely different thing. You can start with small steps.
1: Well, thank you so much, Morton. You have really uh, helped us to get a better understanding of what's important behind the body of Great at Work, and I'm with you on that. As I took that quiz this morning, I was kind of like, ooh, okay, I'm just going to do this one thing here and see what happens. So we're,
2: we're... All right, you're welcome.
1: So one of the things that we like to remind you guys Every time you tune in each Monday live and listen to Breakthrough Radio is that you have an opportunity to take what you've learned today, put it into action, and I would invite you to take what you've learned today, and one way of putting it into action is to go check out and find out what's going on in your community with Startup Grind. You know, you can take just one piece of what Morton has shared today and take that to your local chapter of Startup Grind and start talking to other entrepreneurs about it and find ways that together you guys can learn how to actually perform better with either your entrepreneurial pursuits or maybe that startup you've already created. So, for those of you who are in Houston that might be listening, on Wednesday the 14th, we're going to be hosting a peer-led conversation on net neutrality. And that means that we're going to be, instead of talking with a colleague who's focused um, in everything about what's been their lessons and what's been good and what's been bad and, and, and in a fireside chat, instead, we want to have that peer conversation. And so, be thinking about how is net neutrality potentially going to be affecting my business. Start thinking about what are some of the questions that are surfacing for you, and I want to encourage you to come out and participate in that dialogue. Well, you know, it's time for us to shift into our Breakthrough Bite with Jeff Shuey, and today he is going to be talking about automation. So I'm going to make his mic hot or live, as they say, and – I'm going to go ahead and mute myself, Jeff, and you can take
3: over. Sounds good. Thanks, Michelle. Shall we get going? Okay. Well, this whole segment has not been automated. This is actually me talking live. But for this segment, I got to thinking about it a couple of days ago as I was trying to automate some stuff that I do on a regular basis. So I started thinking about the tools that I use, and sort of why I do it. And, and I also, like usual, I talked about the pros and cons of what happens when you automate things. So for this breakthrough bite, I want to talk about automation, just like it says in the framing post. And like I noted, everyone has routines they follow every day. Some are very predictable and repeatable. Some have cereal every day, drink coffee, uh, get up and check their phone or check email or whatever. And that just the way how people work that's just how humans have been sort of forever but for some of those tasks that can be automated they should be so my assumption and presumption is that some of these manual tasks can be automated and you should take the time to figure out a should i automate them and then the corollary is should i not even bother to do them but i'll come back but the idea here is that these things don't take a bunch of your mental horsepower or physical horsepower to get done automate them. I mean, even simple things like automating your coffee pot to go off at whatever six o'clock in the morning so that you don't have to go down and do all that quote unquote heavy lifting. That's an extremely simple example. And I will talk a little bit about home automation in a bit, but I'm thinking things that you probably need to do for work, maybe for personal life. It could be invoices. It could be home automation, but it can also be shopping. It could be managing your money. So I'll talk a little bit more about those. What it ultimately boils down to is people, process, and technology. That's what my blog has been called for going on 20 years now, or some slight derivative thereof. But it comes down to people. What what things do you need to do with people? And I'm not advocating that you stop doing things with people. I'm just saying if there's something that you need to provide on a regular basis, it could be to a bank, which is people. But it, maybe there's some tasks that you can automate. I'll hit that a little bit more in a bit. If it's some process that you do on a regular basis, whether it's writing a report or writing out checks every month for rent or uh, cable bills and things like that, the majority of that stuff can be automated and should be automated. And this is where the technology part comes in and the people process and technology. There are lots of technologies out there, and the majority of them are free. Some of them have slightly better versions or more predictable and more long-running versions that have a fee attached to them. And it's up to you to decide if it's worth that to pay money to do those things. But what I want to talk a little bit about are some of the tools and technologies that I've used. And I've used every single one of these, and some I've kind of stopped using, some I continue to use. And um, you'll see these in the framing post and also on the follow-up blog post. But as Morton just said, we're all busy. And how do we be great at work? Well, I'm going to add on to that. How do we be more great at work? And that's by automating the simple stuff. So whether you use tools like If This Then That, which I love, it's a fantastic tool, and it's free, and it's actually kind of fun to use. You can do all kinds of things. Uh, For me personally, and you might laugh, but uh, most people know I'm a windsurfer and a kiteboarder and a surfer. I actually have an automated surf report that if the surf gets more than four feet at my favorite surf breaks, it sends me a note, and it tells me when it's supposed to be good. That's extremely simplistic, but it's great for me, and it took about five minutes to set up, and I've been running that, that particular set of automation for over five years now. Um, there's another tool that I like, and it's Microsoft Flow. It's a little more complex, and it ha- because it's a little more complex, it has a little bit more detail and granularity to it, but it works really well. And there's another one called Vapier. Each of those are free. They work fantastic for automating tasks, everything from simple things like checking the surf to maybe making social media posts. And another one I use, uh, I use If This and That for is taking social media posts that I do in conjunction with some of these nonprofits I work with and automatically, sometimes posting them, but also automatically categorizing them for when they went out, what social channels they went on, what content was there, and what media, if any, was attached to it. And that works really well for me. So at the end of the week, the end of the month, I can go back with the report and look and see what we posted and be able to say directly to the team, hey, guys, here's what we posted. Here are the results, maybe clicks and likes, et cetera, because we track those in a separate tool. So I like those those three in particular, if this and that, Microsoft Flow and Zapier, because they work really well. I recommend trying them. But into a, a little sideways here, I just talked about social media. If you're using social media and social networking, you're trying to automate that stuff, there are some amazing free tools out there. A lot of people know them as just sort of using them to monitor and manage social media, things like TweetDeck and Hootsuite. And I also like Social Jukebox and Meet Edgar. And I'm not here advocating and pitching products, I'm just telling you these are tools that I personally use. And we use Social Jukebox with a couple of these nonprofits I'm involved with, and it works really, really well. Uh, but the idea here is try them out. They have free versions, and if you like them, keep using them. If you don't, don't. But where I, where I use them, as I just mentioned, is I use it sometimes to automate postings, especially if we are at a trade show uh, or, or going to be out at a, some specific event. So I want to make sure it's as easy as possible to post content, and they work extremely well. So I, again, try those and test them out. And similarly, if you're using social CRM, which is you know, kind of a not that new of a buzzword, but it's relatively new, um, there's a company that I really like uh, by by uh, John Ferrara, a, a friend who for 20 years or so, called Nimble, and it bolts directly into your Office 365 and G Suite systems. So, if you're using either G Suite, Google Mail, etc., and or Office 365, it takes your contacts. It it does kind of like what Zobni did about 15 years ago within Microsoft Outlook uh, to take contacts and it tries to make assumptions and figure out where you might be connected. It also, of course, remembers your contacts and connections. And then uh, Salesforce and Zoho both have products that fit in here too. And again, I'm not pitching any particular product. I'm just recommending uh, I'm recommending too strong a word. I'm just mentioning a couple of tools that I do use on a regular basis. I'm not getting paid by any of these guys. I'm just telling I like them and use them personally because they work great. One thing that I really want to hit on, and it's it's great for some of the things I do, and it's forms. So if you use forms to automate your – or if you, if you want to automate your life, maybe you want to do something like eVite. If you've ever used eVite or Eventbrite to send out an event invite, which I recommend those too, they sends send you back the information of, who accepted, who rejected, who says there are maybe? you can do the same thing but with a little more detail using Google Forms or Microsoft Forms, or or one of my favorites is SurveyMonkey. And the point of all these things is if you need to, say, gather information about maybe a new product or a new idea you have, and it could be with a small group of friends, it could be with a much larger group of people you may or may not know – you can use these form and survey tools to send information out and it comes back to you in a table. So you can quickly survey and parse and figure out, Hey, maybe I asked the wrong questions and you can make adjustments and tweak them. But the reason I mention all of these is if there's a task that, task that you do on a regular basis, the core point of this talk is just to try and automate them. Start with the small stuff. If you've got a small task, maybe it's capturing detailed or semi detailed feedback, from a meeting you host weekly or monthly or quarterly using these forms or some of these other tools, it's a really quick way to gather that information so that you don't have to remember what questions did we ask last time? What day did we send that out? Where do we post that information? So it's really simple, really common sense stuff, but it can save you a lot of time. And I'll talk about that with the, with the return on investment side and the, the pros and the cons. Um, some of the other things that I've, I didn't put in the framing post but I'll mention is if you do invoices on a regular basis, FreshBooks and Intuit has fantastic tools for that. If you're doing things like home automation, Wemo is a fun, I'll say toy, but it's a, it's a tool to automate your lights and televisions and things like that. And I really like it. But in terms of, and also if I didn't say it, money, if you're trying to manage your money more effectively, Mint is, I'd say, the gold standard. It's free and it works fantastic. Of course, there are others out there. Sometimes directly from your bank. But what I like about Mint from an automation standpoint is it aggregates all of the different accounts, including the nonprofits. So I can see really quickly at a glance what's going on with certainly my personal stuff, but also business stuff and some of the nonprofits I'm involved with. Um, And then another thing, just in in terms of getting back your time. So if if you haven't heard of a personal shopper, they're getting to be quite common and popular these, these days. Amazon's encouraging them, Costco and Walmart are too. And within, for example, at Costco and Amazon, if you don't need to go to a store on a regular basis, just ship it. Ship it to your office, ship it to your house, ship it to wherever you're going to be, and it will, again, save you a ton of time and gas and headaches and everything else. I also don't want to miss sort of the idea of using these voice box assistants or voice assistants, so Alexa, Google, Cortana, the new Apple device. There, I found to be really good, or I found them to be exceptionally good for making lists. Of course, they can do things like play this kind of music or find this movie, but I use our Alexa for just saying, add eggs to my list or to my grocery list, and Alexa will say, added added eggs to your list. Again, it's a simple thing that I, I use a combination of my mobile phone and OneNote, and I use Alexa, and it automatically populates a list for me. And you might be listening thinking, I do this stuff all the time already, and if you do, great. I'd love to hear your comments. I'll, I'll send a follow-on blog post uh, in a day or so after this. And if you've got tools that you really, I'd love to hear about them. But the bottom line on all of this is, anything you can automate should be automated. Start with the simple stuff, go to the more complex stuff. And the corollary to this is, and I, I think um, Morton sort of sort of just mentioned this is. Anything – I'm taking a, a parallel from his point. Anything that can be automated will be automated. People are worried about robots taking their jobs. Well, as I talked about on the last BBS radio uh, uh, Breakthrough Byte segment, they will. Robots will take your jobs. There are things that robots can do significantly more effectively and efficiently than humans can. But we're not getting into that just just here. I'm mostly talking about your own personal life, your finances, your work tasks, et cetera you can automate a lot of that stuff. And like I said, start with the small stuff, make it a game, have some fun with it, try different tools, those those I mentioned are certainly worth a try. What you'll quickly find is that the big stuff can be automated too. And that's what I think it really sort of boils down to. And as it says in the framing post, automation is not bad. Just because you can automate something is actually generally a good thing. It gives you your time back. So whether you're automating tasks for your career, getting content to your customers, to your boss, to your peers, make it as easy as possible. And the last line on the bullet points is how do you get more done when you have all of the responsibility, but none of the authority? That's a classic old line in any company and certainly in some organizations, in in organizations that are even a small group, the hint there is think automation. So when you sort of break it down into, My my typical pros and cons and return on investment, and this is usually the last thing I'll I'll end with, and you'll see this on the follow-on blog post, the pros of utilizing automation to to start with the small stuff is you get to utilize your time more effectively. And in some senses, you get to pay others to do things that you don't want to do or don't need to do anymore. And you might say, well, I don't have any money for that. Well, try and automate it initially. But over time, you might want to pay for some of these tools or some of these people to do tasks like personal shopping. And I don't mean personal shopping to go find your next Hermes scarf or something. If you've got the money for that, great. But I'm talking about even just going for general grocery shopping or picking up stuff at restaurants. TaskRabbit is a great example of that. So the pros are utilize your time more effectively, pay others to do things, and you can get things done. The cons are it's hands off you may miss things. So as you're getting your automation stuff set up, pay attention. Some things, some people may not be getting exactly what they wanted, so you need to check in with them, certainly initially. And then as the process goes on, you can automate a form, again, using Google Forms or Microsoft Forms or SurveyMonkey to say something to the effect of, are you getting what you needed? And if they are, great, everybody wins. And finally, the ultimate is the ROI. You get more time back in your day and your life. So with that, that's my breakthrough bite for this month and on why you should automate the small stuff. Back to you, Michelle. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff.
1: You know, I think uh, also in alignment with what Morton was saying, it'll give you time to start thinking about how you can drive a different and more and better value, which will get you away from what you're doing now and make you highly needed in what's coming so uh, i love all of the tips on how to automate the end of the show as we're closing out is to summarize today's conversation so the suggestion is start reading people's buying signals as don was teaching us and adapt to what you're receiving make sure you're really understanding what green yellow and red means and then focus on identifying your purpose to give yourself a strong foundation to build from. Just a brilliant piece of information from Morton in our featured interview today. And then, of course, automation is your friend when you align it to the value it delivers instead of operating in fear of what it could be, which is what we love about how Jeff helps us to understand that intersection between people and technology every first Monday. So you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. That is a quote from C.S. Lewis. Now, because your feedback is important to the entire team here on Breakthrough Radio, because our intention is to bring you guests each week that expand your knowledge and inspire your actions to grow your business, to accomplish that, it benefits all of us to hear what did you like, what did you not like, which topics are you enjoying, which ones do you want to learn more about. And you can email those requests to thebreakthroughspecialist at gmail.com. Again, that's thebreakthroughspecialist at gmail.com. I want to thank you for visiting and checking out additional episodes of Breakthrough Radio at www.thebreakthroughradio.com. And remember, our brain download question is designed to be fun as well as important. The intention is to remind you to ask yourself, how am I making my choices and my decisions? This is Michelle Pricer with Breakthrough Radio delivering you the best business minds each Monday live. I'm coming to you from the third ghost of Houston, Texas, where we work with you a business down the street or around the world, telling your dynamic story, attracting your ideal customers. We will talk with you next Monday.